The Lord be with you. The writer of Luke's gospel put a lot of effort into highlighting all the stuff that we readers really needed to see. Some key ideas. The writer was connecting the dots, highlighting themes and theological insights that he really, really wanted us to see and understand. Like the way uh, we have that genealogy part that comes later in chapter 3, and no, I didn't make anyone read it this week. It's that part where there's all the names of the fathers of all the people that connects us to our introduction to Jesus of Nazareth. It connects that story to the story of the children of Israel. A list of famous and infamous folks, the people that helped make up Jesus' family tree. Characters whose lives helped tell the story of a chosen people finding their way, people growing in their experience and their understanding of a living God. You've been with us, I hope, on these weeks of Sundays. Since September, we've met with some of these strange and God-touched people, notably Abraham and Jacob and the famous founding fathers. Some ancient rulers are in there. There's good kings and there's some bad ones. And it's worth noting, especially there's David, the golden age king of Israel. And beyond even the story of the children of Israel, Luke takes another really deep cut, reaching all the way back to connect Jesus with Adam, the biblical ancestor of the human race. For readers of First Testament scriptures, this gospel, according to Luke, was identifying itself as the next new chapter. It's the long-awaited sequel that would expand and extend the story, the story of God revealed in the world. Because this new thing is rooted in those first stories. It's why we spend so much time in those long texts. And Luke's gospel also wants us to be super sure to note that the son of Joseph and Mary is also a son of David a descendant of Abraham and Jacob. And with Adam in there, Luke wants us to be sure to notice that Jesus is a part of the human family. There is another connection that Luke sure wants us to make, another way of framing and introducing the gospel. Luke surely wants us to see this story in the scope of human history, setting the gospel account in the during the reign of Emperor Augustus, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Most of us at least have some sort of shorthand understanding of what a storyteller is doing when they frame their story in, say, the French Revolution or the Reagan years or when the McRib was back on the menu for a limited time only. That was 2015, if you can believe it. 
If we are tempted at all to treat this story like a fable or a legend or a myth, Luke is having none of it. According to the text, this is Luke's best account, a message for the people of history, the stories of nations framed by wars and elections and comedies of error and mad kings and queens and natural disasters. Unrest and upheavals and tragic downfalls in places that you can find on a map and places that you can't find on a map anymore. And we, as participants in history, ourselves, Luke is connecting this story to the story that's happening in real time in a place called Edmonton, Alberta, in the days when Justin Trudeau is Prime Minister of Canada and Jason Kenney is Premier of Alberta in the 20th month of the COVID days. As we pick up our story this week, occupied Syria and Judah had been lumped together for the purposes of a Roman census. And as ordinary and routine as a census might sound to us, the people of the first century sure didn't feel that way. The census was not good news. It was pretty bad news, actually. Not only was this a travel and hassle expense, as we know in this story, it was inconvenience for folks like Mary and Joseph and the people in their family. But really, a census, a census was a way for the empire to figure out just how much value they might be able to squeeze out of a subjugated people. What was just another exercise in accounting and inventory for imperial Rome was yet another humiliation for conquered peoples in the known world. A census could mean a new round of taxes imposed scarcity in a system that was rigged to make the elite classes from a foreign land wealthier, more comfortable on the backs and necks of regular local people. A census was ominous news, a depressing cloud hanging over this story. When the kingdom of heaven, for a moment, broke through into vivid reality so that a host of angels could proclaim salvation to the peoples of the earth, this time they skipped right past Augustus and Herod and the bureaucrats and they, they passed over the priests and the prophets and the sages and the religious leaders in the temple the angelic messengers chose shepherds in a field just outside occupied Bethlehem as their audience. We've heard this story a lot, and maybe you've heard some talk over the years, Christmas after Christmas, about how the shepherds were outcasts, out, unwashed and, and dirty people of lowly status. And I gotta say, I don't know if that's an entirely fair way to read that story, actually, because if that's our only takeaway, boy, are we missing out. If you read scripture, you'll see that shepherds play a reoccurring role time and time again. 
Maybe the most famous psalm in the whole Bible, the one we've heard so many times, is the 23rd Psalm. And how many times have people in history been comforted by the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let's not forget Abraham, Jacob, and the founding fathers. They were shepherds. Moses did a long season of humble days tending sheep before he ever herded people. The shepherds in this story were in the hill country near the city of David. The David who famously grew up watching sheep on that very same terrain. I'd say there's a good chance they took a certain working class pride in living a simple life on the edges of civilization. Night shift workers, you feel me? Tending sheep in David's country. Not not glamorous work. Shepherding probably wasn't a path to riches. I doubt that. And uh, I'm pretty sure they didn't sell calendars with hunky pictures of shepherds on them. But there's a certain dignity in this work, isn't there? I can't say I've ever been a shepherd, but I was a tree planter in the wild northern spaces for seven consecutive summers. And I can tell you there is a clarity which comes with hard work and lonely moments in big and wild and open spaces under the sky. Walking the land, weathering the elements, gathering in the dark around campfires, swapping stories and cracking jokes. Shepherds were tough enough to be night watchmen, guards with an eye out for predators and thieves, and they knew how to handle it. But shepherds also came with an assortment of gentler skills, experiences, field veterinarians, flock managers, sheep whisperers, people who knew each of their sheep by name. They tended to wounds and took care of parasites, and they coaxed stubborn life into the world with each lambing season. These were people that shared the plain-spoken manners and speech and accent of country folk. People without much patience for pretense or posturing or city slicker ways. Before I get carried away, I should probably add, as much as it's silly and, let's face it, classist (laughs) to talk about shepherds as some sort of filthy undesirables, it's also kind of weird the way historically we've often romanticized the scene. Ancient shepherds, as we see them in those as glowing models in those Renaissance paintings. As charming as that may be. Beautiful, even. In the rest of Luke's work, though, Gospel and Acts, if those books tell us anything, Luke really liked regular people. Folks who made up the crowds, common people. People you meet at the supermarket, like the ones from that song by Pulp. 
Individuals without positions of power or influence or status or clout. People with worries and fears about the cruel whims of kings and priests and the landed gentry. These were people that needed to hear some good news. And these shepherds in David's hill country near occupied Bethlehem on the wild fringes, well, they were right there. They were in the sweet spot, ground zero for the arrival of the son of David, the anointed one. These were the people for their time and place. They just fit right in there. The place where the land and its shared memories met Scripture's promises and the voices of the prophets and the work and hope of a broken-hearted people. They were just tending to their basic needs, trying to make it to another payday. Of course, of course the angels chose such fine workers as their first audience The first audience for good news that will bring joy for all the people. Who better to hear such a proclamation? I think you might have been hard-pressed, actually, to find a more suitable assembly of hearers. People who, with enthusiasm and joy, ran into town to see the Christ child, to share the news with all those city folk, just as they had been told, telling the fantastic story of angels and joy in the heavens, carrying the message of hope to an anxious city, a message of hope for all the people. A message that just kept on moving, even as the shepherds leapt and sang and laughed their way back to the hill country with their flocks. This was good news for small town people and even those city folk who were worried about rent increases and dip in the markets, the price of real estate, the cost of groceries. People who were worried about the future. What kind of world they were going to leave their children. People pushed around by the whims of commerce and government. And people who'd even heard some of the latest news about a pestilence. This same good news has been moving in history the story that we are a part of. Good news for all the people. Good news for all the people. Who better to hear such a proclamation as this? Thanks be to God. <laughs>